John chapter 9, our text will be verses 13 to 23. <clears throat> Last week, as we were entering into chapter 9, we seen this encounter with Jesus and this man who had been born blind. His disciples had asked him the question, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? And we had discussed a number of things last week as to why it is that the Lord allows such things in our lives. This man was born blind, not because of the sin of his parents, not because of any sin that as some of the rabbis thought that they had actually taught that you could sin in your mother's womb. And depending on what you committed in your mother's womb would be dependent if you had some type of a defect. Uh, Jesus rules that out as well. It was not that uh, this man was born blind because of anything that, that he did as well. He says, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we talked about that. That with, with every instance of suffering in our life or trial or whatever it is, sometimes it is for chastisement, sometimes we bring things upon ourselves, but ultimately it all has the same goal, which is that God would be glorified in you. You count it all joy, knowing that any trial is the testing of your faith. If you're being chastised, it is to lead to that peaceable fruit of righteousness. The outcome should always be the same. And the Lord allows such things in our lives. They are never arbitrary. They never just happen. It's never by coincidence. Everything that happens in our life is ordained by our Lord. It is decreed by Him, and it will come to pass. As Job says, He performs that which is appointed for me. God is absolutely in control over all things, including our trials and our sufferings, which should drive us in order to praise Him more, to honor Him more, to be more dependent upon Him, because in those times, you have only one place to go, which is Him. And so your faith will grow, and His grace is sufficient in those times, as He says to the Apostle Paul. So you have a number of things that we discussed last week of this man who was born blind, as the, the crowds see him, they wonder if it's really him. They wonder if whether or not this is the same man. Is it a different man? He keeps answering that it is I. I'm the one. These are his neighbors. And so in our text today, these neighbors, these friends of his, if you will, are going to bring him before the Pharisees. He's going to be examined. And... Of course, we're going to see a number of different things about the characteristics of the Pharisees, what their intent is, where their hearts are at. Jesus had just performed this magnificent miracle, another act of his grace and his mercy from a man who had been born blind. Another instance in which God would receive great glory. But during the examination here of the Pharisees, there is no joy in them. There is no reflection upon the person of Christ. Maybe he is who he claimed to be. There's nothing of that. They are intent on trying to rule out this whole ordeal, trying to rule out or discredit the miracle. That is their intent. That's their purpose. They are indeed self-righteous. They are going to examine this whole situation, not through the lens of the law of God, but through the lens of their own traditions. That's one of the characteristics of self-righteous people. They come up with a standard of righteousness that they themselves are able to keep and desire to keep. And anyone who does not do those things is ruled out as being of God. That's what they do to Jesus right here. 
They set false standards. They're never joyful of, of any good thing that God does in the work in the life of another. They reject truth. They're never satisfied with any evidence. These are all characteristics we see here, but are characteristics of those who are indeed self-righteous. It is a sad thing that Phariseeism did not die out in the first century, but it continues to this day. Often by those who claim to know Christ, who claim to be of Christ. Their tendency is to set up certain standards, certain laws, if you will. And if you don't adhere to that, then they're, they'll either use intimidation to try to coerce you into doing so. Or they'll just outright declare and, and pass judgment on you. You're not of God. Our Lord never delights in self-righteousness and attitudes or actions of self-righteousness, but our Lord delights in humility. He delights in truth. He delights in faithfulness to what is written. He delights in those that see themselves as, as sinners in need of a Savior rather than those who want to boast their works before God and see no need for a Savior in their life. We have to guard our hearts. This is something that we can look at and we can say, well, we're not doing those things and, 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 and come up with a number of different you know, scenarios. I know this person, but I don't do this stuff. You have to understand something, too, that this is, this is a real temptation. It is real for any genuine believer to fall into this. You have to guard your hearts. You have to keep yourself humble before God. You have to remind yourself of what Christ has done for you, that He opened your eyes. And allowed you to see. And you need to understand that. He opened your eyes. You didn't open your own. You didn't just decide to, to come to life in the Spirit. It was granted to you by Him. He allowed you to come. He, he enabled you to come. And you are in Christ because of Him. And for no other reason. We have to remind ourselves of these things that regardless of what area of life that you allow your uh, that, well, excuse me, what area of life that you're promoted in or that you're over others or whatever accolades that you gather, accomplishments that you have in your life. You always have to guard your heart, realizing that God has allowed you these things not to lord over others, not to be so proud that you look down upon others or that you set up certain ideas and laws that others are to keep that are not in agreement with Scripture, but God has allowed these things in your life in order for you to help teach others and to lead others and to bless others and to minister to others, to use what He's given you for those very reasons. It is indeed a real temptation that you have to guard. And when I say Phariseeism, another name for that that we know very well is legalism. And that is very prevalent within our area. Very prevalent in a lot of churches. We're going to set certain standards that you are to keep. And if you don't, then you're not in right relationship to God. That is, that is a, a very prevalent attitude, sadly, in our day. But we see something else here as well. Not only just all those characteristics of the Pharisees and their intents and their, and their hearts and all of that laid bare before us. But we see something amazing here as well. We see that this man who was born blind, 
who had just merely said of Jesus, the man Jesus is the one who opened my eyes. Now we see something different within him. We see the working of the Spirit of God within him. In just these few verses to see how it is that he, that he all of a sudden develops this great boldness. And this declaration of who he believes Christ to be. It is indeed what God does within believers. That they have had their eyes open and that they have been set free. They know the truth. And that they adhere to that truth and that they are faithful to it. Something remarkable happened to this man. But it's also something remarkable that happened to you and I. You have to understand this is the same Jesus. This is the same Jesus that just did this wonderful miracle to this man that bestowed such grace upon him. The same Christ who has worked in your life as well. Who has emboldened you for the gospel ministry. Let us look at this passage and let our hearts be encouraged by it. And may we all indeed grow to be as, as bold as this man. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We will read verses 13 to 23. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us hear the words of the living God. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he, see, how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we give you all the praise, the honor, the glory for who you are, for how magnificent that you are, for you are holy, holy, holy. And yet, in your divine sovereignty, you decided, you chose to enter into relationship with sinful rebels. Thank you for extending your grace to us in Christ. Thank you for bringing us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you for all that our Lord Jesus did in order to save us. For granting us the ability to come that we may know the truth and be set free by the truth. And Father, work in our hearts this day as the, the, the things that we read here in this text apply it to our hearts that we will be even more faithful unto you. Teach us. For we need the Spirit of God at every moment to teach us. 
May he accomplish all you desire in us. Bless the preaching of your word, Father. May you be praised and honored in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So here we have the questioning of this man who has been healed. An amazing thing that has happened. A time of joy that should be over all that knew this man. What they end up doing is they apparently don't know how to understand this or how to take this. What are they to do with this? This man who was formerly blind, he was a beggar. They knew him. They saw him every day, perhaps. They had given him uh, money at sometimes, perhaps. All of a sudden, now he sees. So what do we do with that? How are we to understand it? Well, let's take him to the religious leaders. Maybe they can help us out. And so they take the blind, the man who was formerly blind, then they take him to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, as the apostle tells us. And they're going to examine him. They're going to question him. They're going to come up with the answers. But they already have one intent purpose anyway, from the very beginning. We have already read that even during the Feast of Tabernacles that was going on beforehand, that they had already had this intent on killing him. They want to kill Christ. They want to get rid of him. And so anything that's going to come to try to give him any attention, they are automatically going to try to discredit it. And what they're going to use to do so is the fact that it was a Sabbath day. So John tells us here that it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and had opened this man's eyes. Now, some theologians would say that perhaps this could be the same day they see him there in the street. He's now able to see. Now they're going to take him to the the religious leaders. Others would say that maybe it was a different day that he was able to to identify who he was before others. Uh, Maybe even had uh, it's a very apparent that he at least at some point had went to his parents and had had told them of what had happened to him. But in any event, regardless if it's that day or another day, he's brought before the Pharisees and they are going to charge Jesus with being a Sabbath breaker again, just as they had done in chapter five. So the Pharisees asked this man who had received his sight how it happened. They don't ask who done it. They don't rejoice with this man. They don't say it is it is so wonderful that God has done this for you after being born blind. We don't know how long uh, this man uh, was blind. We don't know his age. But regardless, it's something to be joyful about. But anything that has to do with Christ, anything that has to do with with truth. They want to discredit It seems as if that this man sees or understands at least some of this in them. He doesn't give the same kind of account as he did before. It's almost as if he gets in there and they say, how did this happen to you? And their attitudes automatically reflect reflect the intent of their heart. And he says, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. He doesn't tell them that. Jesus had spat on the ground that he that he made some some mud and then applied it and then told him to go to the pool of Siloam to go wash. He doesn't tell him anything like that. He keeps it very simple. He applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Very simple. Now, 
what is their declaration then? Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. This is, is, is their idea here. This is what they believe. This is their conclusion. It is not at all to reflect upon the fact that this man has, has been healed, that this miraculous thing has just happened to him. They're not concerned with any of that. The only thing they're concerned of was he did it on the Sabbath. That's it. Why? Because they have certain ideas and laws that they have come up with. That you're not to do certain things on the Sabbath. You're not to, to bring healing to anyone. You're not to nurse anyone as long as it's not life-threatening. If it's not life-threatening, then you just wait till the next day. You don't do anything like that on the Sabbath. Netting was, was forbidden. And there are 39 uh, articles there of what you can and can't do as far as work on the Sabbath. Netting, you couldn't do that. And so maybe they consider Jesus spitting on the ground and then making some mud as, as a form of netting. Well, He broke that one as well. Anointing. You can't do that either. And so at least two or three different, different things that they had set in place according to their oral tradition, Jesus had broken. And since Jesus had broken their set of standards, their conclusion is, they can't be from God. He broke the Sabbath. He broke our laws. He did not keep what we had set forth in our oral traditions. Therefore, their conclusion was he's a Sabbath breaker and Sabbath breakers can't do these things. Others, on the other hand, they said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. There's a division among the people earlier at the, fe the Feast of Tabernacles, their division among the religious leaders. Now, these Pharisees, what are we to think of him? And you almost see a reflection of like what Nicodemus had said in chapter 3. We know that you're from God because no one can do the things that you do except God be with him. Maybe Nicodemus was there. Maybe Nicodemus was one who was leading that, that side. I mean, we don't know. But there's a division that happened here. Now, when you, when you look at this, this whole scenario, what are the, what's the very thing they're not doing? They're not examining his teaching. They're not going to the scripture to be the standard of truth. They're not doing any of that. And any examination, the very the, the standard must be what the word of God says. Whatever the word of God says should be, you know, that, that should be to the forefront. That should be the, the standard. That should be what we're appealing to. And there was none of that. There was no reflecting upon the fact of how is it that this man could do these things because we don't know of anyone else that can do anything like he does. Never in the history of any redemptive history has there ever been any other person who was an unbeliever or who was a false prophet that could do the things that Jesus did. So how can he do it? How can he do those things unless God be with him? And if God is with him, then it should be obvious he's not a Sabbath breaker. 
Is God going to bless a sinner in that kind of a way? Who's going to blatantly just disregard the Sabbath and not keep it holy? They don't ask those questions. They're not interested in those questions. They only want to discredit Him. They're only concerned with the 39 classes of work that was prohibited on the Sabbath. Their standard, not within the Word of God. God never said these things. But according to their standard, it was on equal par with Scripture. These are self-righteous, self-indulging religious leaders who are supposed to be leading others in righteousness, leading others in the truth of God. That is what a religious leader should do. Any pastor, any church leader should always be leading people in truth. Now, there are certain things that we can do in our lives to help one another in order to, to grow in our sanctification, to grow in Christ. Certain disciplines that we can do. But whatever discipline that we do or whatever conviction that we have should never go across the board to anyone else. They're ours. If they can help others, that's wonderful. You take, as we mentioned before, you take Jonathan Edwards, 70 resolutions, 70 things that he continually went over in order to help him grow in the Lord and to, to keep him focused, keep him from falling, keep him from stumbling. Edwards at no point set forth those 70 and said, now everybody has to keep these. Everybody has to do these. Never did he do that. These were certain things that he had disciplined himself to do in his own life to help him grow in Christ. Those are wonderful if you have such things that you do daily in order to keep you focused, whether it's certain time that you set aside for your study and your devotion and your, your reading of Scripture, your, your time of prayer, how you do it. Certain things that maybe you keep yourself from in order to keep yourself from falling or be, being tempted or whatever. That's wonderful. And if it helps you to do that, then that's great. But if it is not set in, in the Scripture as the standard of what we ought to be doing, then we should not be pushing that on anyone else and saying, this is the standard that you are to keep as well. Nowhere do we find that in Scripture. Come up with your own rules and your own laws and then impose it on everyone else. We don't do that. Because the Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is clear on the matters of which we should be doing. How we should be growing. The things that we need to abstain from. How we need to discipline ourselves. Those things are set forth clearly within the Word of God. And yet we have Christians, churches, that have a whole set of rules and regulations that you are to abide by. If your hair ain't the right length, if you're not wearing the right clothes, if you're not listening to the right music, on and on and on you can go with this. Do you have a TV in your house? Do you listen to secular music? Do you have alcohol? Now, there are certain things that we should do, we shouldn't do, some things some can do that others can't. But the standard is the Word of God. Not your opinion, not your conviction. It is the Word of God. That's why we uphold it as Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the final authority in matters of faith and life. 
Not a tradition, not a church denomination, not your thinking. God don't need us to come up with clever ideas. He just needs us to do what is written. And never to, to boast within ourselves to think that we are so high and mighty because we do these things and others don't. We are so much better than you because I do this in my life and I do this in my life and you don't seem to do that. So you're just not good enough. Or are you really a believer? How can you not do those things? We come up with some of the silliest things. And we, we snub our nose at others. We look down on them. We compare ourselves to them. And we think very highly of ourselves. You know, the Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6. We'd read it before. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. There is no examining yourself in light of another and then boasting because you think you're better. You have more disciplines that you do in your life. You seem to, to have the appearance of, of being more righteous than they because you have A, B, C, and D that you do and they don't do it. You know, it's interesting that you have people who, who want to do more self-help teachings in churches and all of that. We don't need help being more proud of ourselves. We don't have self-esteem issues. Our biggest issue is we are too proud. We are way too proud. And we need to be humble. And we need to develop humility in our life. That we would not that we would not present ourselves to others in the way that the Pharisees are presenting themselves to this man. Our Lord delights in humility. And how do we cultivate that? How do we how do we cultivate humility in our life so we don't have this attitude of ourselves? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that again. In Philippians chapter two, this is very familiar to you. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And here's how you do it. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied Himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's how we develop humility. By following the example of Christ, you have the Apostle Paul describing Christ before he before his incarnation. 
that he was sitting on his cosmic throne along with the Father, along with the Holy Spirit, ruling and reigning over it all. And he emptied himself, willingly emptied himself, not of deity, he cannot stop being God. But he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, if you will, and he takes the form of man, he becomes truly a man. He adds humanity to his being. And he becomes obedient. Obedient to the Father, to the will of the Father. He becomes even obedient. You can even look at the incarnation and see how he humbled himself and he submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit as well. Because the Holy Spirit led him out of the, into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit was through whom he had done his miracles. He did not do anything on his own initiative, but only that which the Father commanded of him. And here's the Lord of glory. The God of all creation. The one who spoke it into existence. As John tells us at the very beginning of his gospel here, nothing has come into being apart from him. As the Apostle Paul says that he is the one who created everything. He is the one that created all the angelic hosts. He is the one who created the world and the one who sustains it by his very power. This one takes the form of a servant. He didn't come down to be a great king and rule over the nations at this time. He came to be a servant. The Lord of glory. The king of the king of kings. Takes the form of a servant. He humbles himself. Why? Because the interest of his father was more important than anything else. And if we can get that mindset as well. That our that our desire should be that God would be glorified more so than anything. That Christ would be magnified more so than anything. That we would delight in, in following in obedience because we understand and we keep reflecting and reminding ourselves of what God has done for us in Christ. That keeps you humble. And if you need any more help with that, you can only look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the Apostle Paul really helps us out. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were mighty. Not many of you were wise according to the world. God chose the base things of the world in order to shame the wise. And he's speaking of the people of God. God did not choose you unto salvation because of how much knowledge that you have or what, what kind of status that you have. It was simply by an act of his pure grace. That's it. Simply because he chose to. And that's why the Apostle Paul goes on in that chapter and says that if we boast, let us only boast in Christ because by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. When we allow ourselves to think more highly of ourselves than we should, then it's very easy to develop this kind of an attitude. Because you have these men that they're, they're the leaders. They're the religious leaders of, of Israel. They're the elite. They're, they're the, the ones who, who are the experts of the law. Everybody should be coming to them for answers. They have status. And they allowed those particular things to influence their minds and their hearts. So much so that they are unwilling to even give Christ any credit for anything that he does. They are secured in their unbelief. They have this division among them. Some, some of them are not buying into perhaps what the majority are thinking. And it seems as if the majority are the ones who say he's a Sabbath breaker because 
that further questioning is coming from that point of view. So maybe that's the majority speaking. Can anyone perform such signs as this? Well, again, the answer is no. Deuteronomy 13 does give warning that if a prophet arises among you or a dreamer of dreams and he shows you a sign or a wonder, he's testing you, is what the Lord says. I'm testing you. Because if that thing comes to pass, then you're to examine it through his words. Because his words, as he says in Deuteronomy 13, are going to lead you into rebellion, to lead you to serve other gods. And the Lord makes it very clear that he's testing his people. But no false prophet has ever been known to do the things that Jesus did. That's why it was so unique for him to be able to do all this, to raise the dead. To, to give sight to the blind, to heal the leper simply by touching him or speaking a word. No one could do the things that he did, which was a demonstration of his divinity. He could do these things. And those signs and wonders that Christ did were not to just lead people to be in awe of him, but to listen to his message. The signs and the wonders authenticate the messenger and no one else could do the things that he did. So what were the things that he was saying? And let's examine those. Well, they don't do that either. They interestingly turn to the man who was healed. They're having a division among them. They don't care for this man. They're going to disregard what he says anyway. But they look at him and they say, what do you say about him since it was your eyes that he opened? So here's this man, formerly a beggar. Perhaps pleading with people daily. To give him something so that he could eat. That he could sustain whatever living conditions that he had, maybe. We don't know. And then there's this boldness that comes over this man. His eyes have been opened. And he declares of him, he's a prophet. He doesn't say, you know, I really don't know. You make a good point there. But then you guys make a good point too. You know, I'm really not sure. I just know that my eyes are open. He doesn't say that. Perhaps even in the face of the majority that are questioning him, he looks at him and says, he doesn't, he doesn't really even ask the question, maybe a prophet? He says, he is a prophet. He's very bold in his declaration. And you see that, that amazing thing that is, that is working within him. You see how... The religious leaders are responding. But then you see how the working of God is in this man's heart. To bring about such boldness over him. Such trust. To declare this even in the face of opposition. It's amazing how God can work in the heart of people. To change them that quickly. Because one of the greatest examples of that is you see the, the, the apostles. You see the apostles uh, before... Uh, when Jesus was on the earth with them, they're very timid. They're fearful, especially when he gets arrested. They're all scattered. Peter denies him three times. And yet, after the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes in the fullest measure upon all believers in Acts 2, all of a sudden you see Peter with even greater boldness who is declaring the truth of Christ before the very ones that had crucified him. Before the very people that had cried out, crucify him. 
That is the working of the Spirit of God in the hearts of believers, in the hearts of His people, as they, they are encountering the truth, and that they are understanding the truth, the Spirit of God is applying that to their hearts and they are being emboldened, they're growing. And that is, by the way, how your salvation works, your sanctification works. You cannot grow in Christ apart from the Word of God. Can't do it. It's interesting how people want to disregard the Word of God and think to themselves that they're growing. It doesn't work that way. Here's the Holy Spirit of God who inspired the Scripture. He's going to use the Scripture that He inspired in order to apply it to your heart to cause you to grow. Grow in your understanding. Grow in your dependence. Grow in your, your, your understanding of the magnificence of God. The magnificence of your King, the Lord Jesus. What boldness that the man has. They're still resolved not to believe any of this. The text tells us that. They did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they begin to question them. Is this your son who you say was born blind? And how does he now see? So a couple of different things here. If they were giving an honest inquiry, which it doesn't seem that they were. Some of the people even on the street were saying, is this really the man? No, 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 no. He's like him. And he keeps declaring, no, it's me. So maybe this isn't the man. Maybe this is somebody else. Let's call the man's parents in. Let's see what they have to say on it. So they are going to examine the parents. And this, is a, this, is, this would be a very disappointing uh, circumstance here. Very disappointing situation. This man being healed, no doubt, had went to his parents. I can see. I'm healed. It was the man, Jesus, who had healed me. And I, and I can see. I can see you. Never seen you at any point in my life, but now I can see you. What joy should have been on the hearts of even his parents. But as his parents come into this court setting, if you will... They really, in one sense, they really abandoned him. As that old saying goes, they passed the buck, if you will. They say this. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And John tells us that the reason that they said this because they were fearful. They were fearful that they would be put out of the synagogue. So them saying this was a blatant lie on their part because they knew better. That's the implication there. They only said that so that they wouldn't be put out. They knew who did it. They knew how it happened. And yet they really just put it all on their son. Instead of being joyful for him and standing with him and saying, this man opened his eyes. He's been blind from birth. And this is how he did it. They don't do any of that. They really just leave him to himself. Because they're afraid. Because they're using intimidation to try to coerce people 
not to confess Jesus as the Christ. They don't want any talk of that. They don't want anyone saying that he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God. They don't want to hear any of that. Jesus threatens their status among the people. Jesus has already called them out numerous times of what they really are, that they're blind guys leading the blind. Jesus had also said of them that you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions. They want rid of him. And they don't want anyone to confess him. Anyone that does is to be put out of the synagogue. That is to be excommunicated. Which was indeed a very fearful thing. Because the religious life of Israel was so intertwined with every other aspect of life that to be excommunicated from the synagogue was to be socially ostracized. This is a serious thing. But they were not willing to stand firm in truth in order to declare what was really, what was really right about this whole scenario, this whole situation. They just were not willing so they passed the buck to him. Ask him. The religious leaders are not going to stand with him. His neighbors and the people that brought him there are not standing with him. Even his own parents are not standing with him. The other side of the, 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 the Sanhedrin, or well, this probably was not the Sanhedrin, this is probably a smaller court. The other half of the Pharisees that were considering the fact that what sinner can do these signs were not standing with him. This man was pretty much alone. But you know the thing about this man, in spite of all that was happening over here, all the self-centeredness, all the, the, the self-indulgence, the self-righteousness put on display, the lies that are being propagated here, any desire to discredit Jesus was, was on full display there. In spite of all of that, this man didn't care anything about the consequences. Because his only purpose, his only focus, was of the man who actually healed him, Christ Jesus. The one who gave him sight. He was steadfast throughout the whole ordeal. This was the only one in this whole scenario here that was actually living the truth. He knew what happened to him. He knew who done it. And he knew that he had to be from God. He didn't care about any others that wouldn't stand up for him. His eyes had been opened and he was trusting in him. Jesus had showed him his power. And Christ was the only one that truly mattered. Because of him, he would walk in darkness no more. That's the amazing thing that we find here of, of what is happening to this man. In spite of everything else, this man was still trusting. This man was immovable. Regardless of the consequences. How can he develop that? How can he do that? Well, it can only be through the Spirit of God working in him. How is it that, not just for this man, but how is it that many throughout the history of the church can stand in direct opposition to authorities, knowing that their life is on the line, 
and say, I still will not recant. How can they do that? Knowing that they're going to be used as human torches for Nero. Or they're going to be thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by the wild beast. How they're going to be crucified. How they're going to endure such horrendous deaths. How can they do that? How can those throughout the, the, the time of the Puritans, how can they endure the things that they did? The time of the Reformers. Knowing that, they, that their lives are on the line, how can they do those things? Because it's only by the Spirit of God who grants such grace and who grants such, who grants such strength and resolve in those times is the only way that it can happen. And God was granting him this at this time. And that's what He grants to all people that are His. Such strength and resolve. Not to be intimidated, but to stand firm in truth. Not to be intimidated with consequences or to be fearful of them, but to stand firm in truth and to trust in God. The one who opened this man's eyes is again the one who opened yours. The one who granted this man grace is the same one who granted you grace. You're serving the same Christ, the same Jesus. You were once in darkness, as the Scripture declares of us. Walking in the futility of your mind, being darkened in your understanding, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, having no purpose, dead in your trespasses and sin, by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Until the light of Christ shone in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit who, who granted you the ability to see. That was granted to you. You weren't smart enough that you all of a sudden just said, these things are true. I think I'm going to follow that. You were granted that privilege to come. Not by any wisdom you had, not by any status that you had. Because the Holy Spirit of God took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, and in doing so gave you the mind of Christ. That you could call out upon Him in faith. That you can know and discern the spiritual things. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. And they are spiritually appraised. All of that was granted to you by a pure act of grace. The light of Christ shone in your heart and expelled the darkness. And what does He call us to do then? The same thing that this man did. To stand firm in what we know to be true. To declare what is right and good according to the Scripture. To confess Christ to be exactly who He is. And to trust, knowing that regardless of what consequences may come in doing so, that our God is sovereign and our God has purpose. Everything that happens has purpose in it. It's not arbitrary. It's, it's not, again, happenstance or coincidence. We sometimes wonder, what would we do if these things happened and we were standing before courts and, 
And they were examining us and we had fear of our life and whatever. What would we do? We do the same thing that this man did. The same thing that all believers throughout history had done. We will stand firm. Be immovable. And love not our lives even unto death. Because this isn't our hope here. We have a greater hope to come. And that's why we can endure the things that come in this life. Even, even situations like that. Maybe on a smaller scale. Maybe it'll be on a larger scale at some point. But our hope is in Christ. And we know that this isn't, this isn't the end. There's something greater that is coming. For those that are in Christ. And that hope is what drives us. That hope is what helps us to be resolved. And it is so amazing to me. As it is for, I know many of you, the, uh, when we've talked about it, how men like, like John Rogers, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley could, could endure the things that they did. As John Rogers, one of the first of the Marian martyrs, as he's being, he, he was tried in, in, in London and as he's being led to his own town in which what they would do is they would try them there. And then they would take them to where they preached and then they would set them on fire. The French ambassador was there. All the people are lying the streets. And John Rogers is being led to his death. And he's, he's singing the Psalms and he's quoting the Psalms. And the French ambassador said as he was riding back to France, he said it looked as if Rogers was going to a wedding. That was his countenance as he was being led to his death. When he gets to the place of his execution, he looks over his family, he looks over his congregation, and he says, that which I have preached to you, I will now seal with my own blood. And they bind him and they set him on fire. He had his hands lifted until he couldn't anymore. Take guys like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who died together. They were bound together. But as they're being led to the place of their execution, they get to the place where they have everything ready. And both of them kneel down. They pray. They take a piece of the kindling that's going to be used to set them on fire. They kiss it. They put it back. And they're bound together. And Hugh Latimer, being the elder gentleman, said to Nicholas Ridley, Fear not, Master Ridley. And play the man. For we shall light such a candle in England as I pray will never be put out. And again, lifting their hands until they couldn't any longer. They had a greater hope than this life. And they were willing to endure all the consequences that came for the sake and the honor of Christ. They would not waver from the truth and they trusted God even to the end. That is the characteristic of the people of God. That is why we, we immerse ourselves in Scripture. That's why we continually learn that we can behold with our eyes of faith our great King and Master who is Lord over all. And see how He works in the Scripture and to see the things that He does to know that He's trustworthy and that He's always faithful and that He can be trusted even in times of great distress, even in times of, of pain, even in times of, of disappointment. Again, as John Knox said, one man with God is in the majority. Dear friends, 
never lose heart over what happens in this life or whatever may come in our nation. Don't lose heart. There is nothing, as MacArthur would say, there is nothing that is in the kingdom of darkness that will ever affect the kingdom of Christ. Ever. You stay firm. Continually growing, continually learning, continually fellowshipping and communing with your Lord and setting your hope there and not here. And in the time of your testing, you will come through because it will be the strength of God that will bring you through. Let us not be anxious over whatever may come. Set our eyes upon Christ. Be faithful and trusting. Let's pray. Gracious God, how we thank you for all that you are, all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for this portion of your word, which indeed helps us to understand the things that we need to guard ourselves in. Helps us to understand, too, how we need to trust in you. We are so thankful that it is you that works within us and these things are never in our own power. It's all yours, your power. You get all the credit for everything. Credit for our salvation, the credit for our resolve and truth, convictions that we have. All of that is a working of God in us and how we thank you. Lord, help us never to lose heart. Keep us close to you and keep reminding us of the greater hope that we have. Keep reminding us of the work of our Lord, of what He did. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. Let us be reminded of these things that we would not place ourselves above others, but to recognize that we were in need of a Savior. Apply this passage to us. May we ever be grateful for it and seek to carry it out. To you be the praise, the glory, the honor in all things, Holy Father. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.